Welcome back to part two of our podcast with Sissy Goff and David Thomas, child and adolescent development experts. Uh, and man, this has been so much fun uh, already. So let's jump back into some of the things we've been talking about. All right. So we've, we've touched on anxiety a bunch so far. So, so maybe let's get a little more practical for parents who are struggling with kids who have anxiety. What are some practical ways in which they can help? You mean to start with some? Sure. We talk a lot about beginning the anxiety journey with understanding and then moving toward help and hope. And that all three are equally important. It's not like one outweighs the others. But you did such great education a few minutes ago talking about understanding. I think in terms of the help piece, one of the things that Sissy does in Raising Warrior Free Girls that I love, she breaks down help into help for the body help for the heart and help for the brain. And I think that's a great, clear way for parents to think about leaning in in those different ways. And we start with help for the body to first just educate ourselves and kids on what's happening in our bodies when any of us is emotionally charged, whether it's anxiety, whether it's anger, any number of emotions. But what happens is that our heart rate increases, um, our pupils dilate so that we can see danger farther away and blood flow moves to the larger muscles so we're like tensed and ready to fight and even our stomachs jump on board with less digestive activity so we can shore up more energy so if you think about that's a great biological state if you're going to encounter a rattlesnake or a grizzly bear (laughs) that's not a great not if you have the sat on saturday no not if you're about to take the sat right or make a shot from the free throw line all these different moments kids at the starting block of a track race or cross-country race and so we love starting with educating kids and parents on okay here's what's going on what can we do to reset the brain and body in those moments when our bodies are amped up and so we start with kind of our beginning point 101 is just with uh, what we call square breathing and just teaching kids the rhythm and the pace of some deep breathing and I laughingly say I had a little seven-year-old guy in my office who came in for his first appointment. He was like, my mom told me breathing would work, but it's not working at all. And I said, well, show me how you're doing it. And he was like, (laughs) and I was like, okay, that's labor and delivery breathing. We're going to work on a different kind of breathing. So it's, we have kids trace the shape of a square and you breathe in on one line, pause for four seconds. Breathe out on the second line, pause again, breathe in on the third line, breathe out on the fourth line. And that square is just a great concrete tool that allows kids to get the accurate rhythm and pace. And so we'll have them draw it on their legs and we'll have kids come back and tell us, you know, I was doing that under my desk right before I took a time test and it was calming me down. And had a little boy say, I did it at the free throw line right before the referee threw me the ball. And so we love those stories where kids are attaching to, okay, this is something that can help that reset process in my body and brain and research would tell us that at least 20 seconds of deep breathing will reset the amygdala and wow. begin that process so that would be kind of 101 yeah. what other help for the body would you layer well, in? just to be clear too when yeah. you say drawing it under the desk just because we may have students listening we don't mean actually like with pens drawing no. it under the <laughs> desk. Your I'm just, leg I'm just thinking no, of our maintenance crew and our yes, teachers no, you know right yeah. here it so, is yes. uh, and but, I will comment that with boys I have to dress up square breathing a little bit so I call it <laughs> combat breathing oh I love it I know and that's oh now I'm in that you're in you're brought in I can combat and, breathe. and it is yeah. actually something I learned from some work I did years ago with Navy SEALs and is a skill they're required to demonstrate because Hmm. think about these individuals are in life or death situations absolutely and they've got to be able to 
reset themselves in ways where they can make the most thoughtful, intentional decisions as possible. So I dress it up and call it combat breathing with boys, that. and there's a little more buy-in. Yeah. I've been talking to parents more and more about preventatively doing some of the work too, because what happens, you know, we create these neural pathways in our minds that are like well-worn paths. And the more often the amygdala is triggered, the more likely it is to trigger. So it actually enlarges in anxious kids and develops kind of a hair trigger response. And so the more we can preventatively driving to school all together, we're going to take five deep breaths right now, or I'm going to pull out my phone where I, where I have it sitting here and get on Headspace or Calm mm-hmm. Kids. Those are two of our favorite apps. And we're going to practice some of this together. It is preventative for them in such a really important, healthy way. And so I would add that for yeah. sure. But I, I mean, our really, our first three go-tos are, breathing and then we move to what is a cognitive behavioral therapy technique called grounding strategies mm-hmm. so with anxiety we talk about it like one loop roller coaster at the fair you know what happens and you mentioned this i mean there's kind of a continuum from worry to anxiety and all kids pass through different stages of fear all kids worry to some degree when we get concerned is you know we we all have these intrusive thoughts so maybe my intrusive thought is I hope my car doesn't go off the road right now. Well, then if all of a sudden I think, oh, no, my car's about to go off the road. I think, am I, am I close to the road? I'm too close to the road and I'm stuck yeah, in a loop. Right. That's what to me characterizes anxiety. And so with that, I think we've got to calm their body back down so they're capable of it. And then we've got to pull them out of the loop. So anything that requires focus pulls them out of the loop. And sensory information is one of the most helpful places we can go. So, you know, anxiety does not exist in the present moment it's always in the past or the future so we've got to pull them back to the present which mm-hmm. is what the sensory data helps with so one of our favorite games is five four three two one so a child in my office is really anxious I practice the breathing and then I say okay we're going to play our five four three two one game tell me five things you see and I let them look around the room and say I have a lot of pigs because I'm from Arkansas. I see that pig. Right. I see, you know, they pick five We're things. in Rod's office, so books would be most of the right. answers. Books, yes. I see way yeah. more than five books. Yeah. So five, five things you see, four things you hear, and then you have to get quiet to listen. Tell me three things you feel, not emotionally, but from a tactile sense. Hmm. Tell me two things you smell. Tell me one thing you taste. All five senses, and especially the smell and taste. You know, we have to really kind of dial yeah. in to get to that. So I can't think about looping about my car going off the road and thinking about the sensory data. So that's usually the second thing we do. You want to do the third? We'll just keep going back and forth. Yes, we absolutely will. We also introduce what we call the color game or the counting game, and just pick a color. Okay, the color red. I want you to tell me everything red in the room that you see right now, and we shift to green. And the objective, again, as Sissy was saying, like, Worry takes up a lot of mental real estate. And so when we're doing this kind of cognitive work, there's no room left over for worry to be occupying the space because we're engaging the mind in amazing ways. And counting is another one that we use where we'll, you know, with kids who are really young, say, okay, start at 10, count backwards, 10, 9, 8. With kids who are more advanced with math, all right, let's start at 50 and then count backwards by 5, 100 and count backwards by 7. I could never do that one, but a lot of adolescents could. But figuring out, again, how we can ground them in that space. And I want to also say I love, Sissy, when you talked a few minutes ago about the preventative piece of this because I don't think we could be talking enough with kids about that because, you know, studies show that after prolonged periods of stress, the adult brain can bounce back in about 10 days, but the adolescent brain, it takes three weeks. And so 
wow. you know, if we're doing a lot of this work on the front side, yeah. there is so much gain for kids and adolescents in terms of just developing a healthier brain. I'm just thinking about for, for our kids who are very involved in lots of things. I mean, in three weeks, you know, there's a lot that happens. Yes, so if they're, if they're trying to do all that with their brain in, in that state still, you know, that's going to be difficult. And you know, they don't so. even know their brain's trying to recover and they're yeah. not getting enough sleep and they're, right. yeah, all the different things that are yeah. going on for them. I love what yeah. you said. I just want to make sure I got it right. Anxiety is never about the present. It's always about the past or the future. Yes. Okay. That's good. Can I steal that one? Sure. I'll, cre- I'll credit you oh, when I, that's you know, good. use it with our kids. Yes. Um, I, there's a couple other emotions I think that are, are pretty common in, you know, kids and adolescents, uh, which maybe as parents, We'd love to have some more practical tools as well. So, like, let's talk about anger, right? Yeah. Kids get angry, and you know, sometimes my instinct is, you know, hey, you don't need to be angry about that, which clearly doesn't work because they are <laughs> angry about it. Uh, you know, what kind of practical skills can you give parents for for dealing with kids who are who are really for having anger for the first mm-hmm. time and and figuring out how to manage that? I would say first, it is super common for boys, and that's not to say it's not for girls, but I think. Research would tell us that around 9 to 10, a boy's brain will begin to channel all primary emotions Mm. into anger. Hmm. So it'll show up as that, but it's often, we talk about how anger is a secondary emotion. There's always something underneath. So underneath that presentation of anger with boys is often fear or often sadness or often I'm embarrassed, whatever it may be, but its presentation looks angry, volatile. And Sissy mentioned a little bit earlier that Boys have a lot of physicality to their emotions, so that anger can be, I'd call it outward movement, a lot with boys. And so it's why toddler age boys are more prone to hitting, biting, kicking, screaming in classrooms. Teenage boys are a bit more prone to punching holes in drywall. It's that presentation of the physicality of the emotion and needing a release. And that's another place where I, I love educating boys and parents on that. Like, that's normal. That's a part of how God hardwired you. And that... Energy and that intensity is a gift and can be used in so many amazing ways. And it can also be something you turn on yourself and on relationships that are really important to you. And so it's vital that you figure out what's underneath. But I don't think that boys can do that work of figuring out what's underneath until they've done some releasing of the physicality of it. Well, that's, and you know, I already said I, I have girls, but that's something that as a parent, I can just imagine, you know, your your four year old, five year old, eight year old what needs this physical release and is is being violent, you know, is hitting somebody, or or your twelve year old punches a hole through the wall, and as a parent, you might wonder, oh my gosh, is this some sign of, you know, I have some some you know deviant in my house that is <laughs> destined for, and what you're saying is that's that's a part of a boy's natural development of yes. figuring out what to do with that, and I think it's an invitation to. We talk in our My Kids on Track about a milestone we call resourcefulness of just taking the emotion to something constructive. And it's an invitation to say, okay, we need to develop more resourcefulness. Let's figure out how to do that. I talk a lot in that book about creating an actual space for kids to go when they're feeling that intensity and they need a release and putting some tactile and movement experiences in that space where they learn that's where I go when I'm struggling and sway. Not where I go when I'm in trouble, but where I go when I have these big emotions welling up inside of me and the journey of going there is as important as ending up there because learning like I don't need to use another person someone or something Hmm. to help me work through my emotions I have the resources inside Hmm. of me to do that and I think that's key otherwise 
I think a lot of boys turn their moms into their primary resource and they work out a lot of their frustration, anger, fear, yeah. those things within that relationship. And that's not saying I don't want them to experience the safety of that relationship. I certainly do. And, and their mom's helping them do a lot of great brainstorming. Right. But I don't want them to become their coping skills. Yeah. I want them to be developing their, those skills on their own. And so for, for anyone listening who has kids 12 and under, those kids in terms of their cognitive development are in what we call concrete thinking. So the world is very black and white. So when we have an actual space for them to go to, it's a great fit for the way they learn and the way they experience life, like a concrete experience. Yes, I go to this part of the house when I'm struggling, and I use these tools to help me when I feel a lot of that anger. I don't know what else it's you'd funny. say. It's so interesting to hear you talk because my experience around girls <laughs> and anger is just so incredibly different than what you experience with boys. And I talk to a lot of parents of younger girls who are angry at home. And as David talked about anger being a secondary emotion, most of the time I would say it's about anxiety, hmm. especially if it's an oldest girl. I mean, I am at the point where I think most oldest girls – have some degree of anxiety and for a lot of them they don't know how to process it yet and so all the only option they have is to get yeah. angry it's the only way they're this, mad that it's there right yeah. right yeah and I think most of those girls will come back and say I'm sorry they'll end up saying I don't like that I act that way I feel bad about how I treated you maybe not in that language girls I think so much more than boys typically have such a desire to please that I feel like for a girl's anger to supersede her desire to please makes me think there's more to the story and there's something else going on that I want to figure out what it is. And it can be anxiety. It can be ADHD that we talked about before. Um, Girls with ADHD, I think it manifests so differently than boys. And and as y'all know, I mean, boys are going to be acting out in the classroom. They're going to be disruptive. We're going to start to see it those ways girls maintain during the classroom. They can fly underneath the radar at school because they want to please. And so they're going to use every ounce of energy they have during the day, and then it's going to come out with their parents at night. But I think that lack of self-regulation can be a picture of that. But what I see most often for girls is I feel like, I don't even know what I would say, maybe under the age of fifth grade, I hear about angry girls, and then it stops. Really? Because what I think is the anger turns inward. They know it's not acceptable anymore unless they have a really hard time regulating or they're kind of a mean girl. And that's a whole nother thing we could talk about. But for the majority of girls, I think it turns inward, which is why when I sit with parents of little girls who are acting out and kind of explosive with their anger, I usually will say, it's great. She's doing it because that same ferocity that you're experiencing is going to be turned on her later. And so for you to be able to work it through with her now is a gift for the rest of her life for her. Wow. What a, what a perspective changer. Well, I mean, I just, girls are so hard on themselves. And I have always felt that, but it is exponentially worse than it's ever been. And so I think the earlier we can get them the tools, the better. Yeah. I was thinking as you were talking to, that to me feels like another answer to your earlier question about the differences between yes. boys and girls right there. Like where it wouldn't be acceptable for a girl and is culturally acceptable for a boy. Yeah. In fact, I don't think we give boys much space to feel fear or sadness right. at that mm. point. Yeah. But anger's fine. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. we can see that on any professional athlete right. on ESPN sure. on any given day. Yeah. But not the fear and sadness. Yeah. And so I think there's another significant yes. difference right there. And we're we're gonna we are going to have to work harder unique to gender in those spaces often. Yeah. 
here's an emotion that that I think uh, is is especially applicable for a child's school experience. Like we deal with this a lot, but disappointment. Mm. What advice? What practical tools do you have for parents? You know, their their child comes home and is experiencing disappointment about something, right? What should we be doing as parents? I'll tell you my favorite. Because, you know, we could talk about emotions on a 1 to 10 scale. And yeah. I think we have mentioned this. More B- kids are Before you at 10. say that, if your favorite is, like, to call the school and complain, I might, <laughs> I might you know, I might have feelings. No, so. but, yes, no, that does happen. We get this call sometimes, too, ourselves. Yes, yes. No, that is not my favorite. Okay. But if we were going to think about emotions on a 1 to 10 scale, we're seeing more kids live at 10 than ever before. Anger sadness, anxiety, disappointment, and they don't have a sense of how to regulate. And so, you know, we know sitting here as adults, most of life happens in the three to seven, but everything feels like a 10 for them. There's no distinction of someone hurt my feelings or I had a family member die. They just can't tell the difference. And so every disappointment carries this intense weight. And so what I have started calling it in my office, because I work primarily with girls, is a drama monitor. And so, not that I call it that with the girls, but with the parents, I'll I'll explain this. And so with kids, I will say, tell me the hardest thing you can imagine happening. And we'll talk about what a 10 is for them. And it's typically losing someone that they really love. Sure, yeah. And so, and if as a parent, you have that conversation in a calmer moment, then when you pick your child up from school, you're one who lives at a lot of 10 with disappointment or whatever, and you start with empathy. I think we've always got to start with a whole lot of empathy. Yeah, it sounds so hard. I can tell you're really disappointed. Man, I can't imagine what that feels like. What number do you think it was on your scale? Yeah. And then I have so many kids who will say to me, it felt like a nine, but you're right, it was a six. (laughs) Yeah. Which yeah, is so good. good for them to have that automatic perspective. And they're yeah. still expressing their disappointment right. because we certainly want them to talk about it. But we want them to talk about it with the milestone. We consider it a milestone of perspective. What would you add right. about disappointment? Yeah, I, I was thinking as we were talking, you know, we, we go so quickly to the place of the downside of disappointment. And, you know, it's... We talk so much about resilience, like it's the birthplace of growth. Yeah. You know, if we don't bump up against disappointment, struggle, failure, those are the places where every one of us knows we grow the most. Which it, but it sounds so easy until it's your kid that yes. has it. Right. Right. And, oh. and, and even as a parent, you, you know, maybe you see the logic in why they're disappointed about it. And, and you just have this instinct of like, you know, I got to take this away from them. Mm. Right. So how do I not do that? Right. You know. Speaking hypothetically for all the people that <laughs> asking for friends. Yeah. I think it is that constant reminder that we know that to be true. But living out that truth is a whole nother thing. But yeah. I think I have to go back to that over and over again. Or else, you know, when we teach on the deficits of avoidance and, you know, stepping into these places of not letting kids experience, I know that. I teach it. And yet I can forget it yeah. in those moments right. with my own kids when I see them in those places. I have a good friend in Nashville who's an administrator at a school and he was telling me just this week that his one of his sons was trying out for a sport and he said you know I'm just aware that he's on the bottom tier of the kids who are trying out and might make the team um, possibly because he's my son and I work at the school (laughs) and probably didn't earn that place and I went to the coach and just said please don't do that Mm. and I was listening I mean I just had chills as he was telling me that and he said 
I felt both grateful and sick and saying, yeah. And I yeah. thought, of course, because grateful because you know there's opportunity for his good and growth in that yeah. space and sick because you're thinking they'll probably take me up on that. You yeah, know? And right. rightly so. And I thought, gosh, what a courageous step to make. And this kid is a fifth grader right now. Yeah. What an opportunity to learn at a tender age before the stakes are higher to taste and feel and experience disappointment before kids are getting college acceptance letters and yeah. applying for internships and first jobs. And I love when you talk about families sitting around the table and just talking about failure and mm. making that a regular part of your conversation so that kids see evidence of that on the grownups they trust the most in this world, whether it's you know, something silly like, this is a ridiculous thing I did today, to I got passed for a promotion today, and here's what it felt like. Yeah. And I think for any dads listening, I would say, you know, as we think about boys, I think boys so quickly, because we as males value competence so much, we equate disappointment with failure. Yeah. Like, it's, you yeah. know, it's not like it was a loss or something. It's like, I failed, yeah. I'm bad, you know, and we connected to that competence piece in ways that I don't think boys can hear enough adult men speak to the dailiness of disappointment or the experience of loss in a way that is part of our human experience. Yeah. You know, in the Bible, in the book of James, it says suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character hope. As two therapists who have been doing this for this many years, the strongest kids that we have ever met are the kids who've been through a lot of pain. So like James wasn't lying to us. No, yes, okay. no, he was not <laughs> lying to us. We see evidence yeah. of it every single day. So if your kids are in a season to know that good things are growing inside of them, yeah, even in this moment. That's a great yes. biblical reminder. Do, do you, is it healthy for us to share our, our own disappointments with our kids? I mean, I, and yes. I'm, I'm not like, it seems like the obvious answer is yes, but I'm, I'm kind of just realizing I don't know that I do that yet. Mm. Like, but is, does that help them? Yes. And moments where you feel afraid and moments mm. where yeah. you felt worried. I mean, all of those things that I think we talked a little bit with parents earlier today about uh, mirror neurons that are firing with our kids all the time that are part of how they learn to tie their shoes and water ski and shoe yeah. hoops. And how much kids learn from observation more than information. And when they can sit front row to the people they trust the most in this world, talking about those things, yeah. it just gives so much permission and space to say, like, this is normal. I feel like I'm always trying to model, like, not being disappointed or mm -hmm. just rolling with it. Like, well, I guess this is how it is and that's okay. But I'm not actually sharing in that, that I am feeling disappointment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yes. that, that may be a key step that I'm missing, yes. I guess. Yeah. I went and saw an author and priest named Richard Rohr speak, I don't know how many years ago now, 12, well, I should be able to say the math, I can't get there, but he said, you become an adult at the age of 32. Wow. I was 32 at the time, so I like <laughs> latched onto it, and he said, because you realize two things. One is life doesn't work the way you thought it would, and the second is that you don't work the way you thought you would. <laughs> and I mean, I think, honestly, I would be curious what you would say about this, David. I think if I had to think about the biggest shift in parents in the last 10 years that has been the most detrimental to kids is that parents are rescuing kids more than ever hmm. and preventing the disappointment and stopping them from feeling anxious by fixing it for them. And I think, I mean, I can think of a family that I know and she did not get the office that she hoped to get at her school. And her parents sued the school. Oh, my gosh. 
And that is saying life should work the way you yeah. think it should. And it always yeah. will. And if it doesn't, then you storm the gates right. and do something about it. And what a handicapping message for kids. I can't even imagine what her adulthood is going to be like when she hits suffering that yeah. doesn't produce perseverance because she gets stuck. I, I struggle uh, quite a bit with that um, in the very beginning of James where it talks about consider it pure joy mm. when you have trials, right? I'm not very good at modeling feeling <laughs> joyful when I have yes. those trials, but part of, of, of what you're saying feels very biblical in that um, we should celebrate our kids' disappointment mm. because that is what is actually going to make them more godly and, and honestly also more happy people. Yes. Okay. Well, and you think if we want to live the truth of that scripture out to the two stories that we told, there's not a lot of space to sue the school when your kid didn't win the class <laughs> office <laughs> versus you know the wisdom of that dad I was talking to of saying, like, I want him to experience this because yeah. I believe – not making the team could be a fifth grade boy's way of experiencing suffering yeah. that would give way to building his character, yeah. that would give way to hope. Yeah. It's going to lead to these rich conversations they're going to have together as a family. It's, it's a good segue to, to another thing I've been thinking about. Like we're talking about a lot of these practical skills, but in, in your experience as believers, I mean, these skills are matching with the Bible and with mm. what Jesus is telling us and what God has told us. So I don't know, maybe you can talk more about the role of Scripture and the backing of Scripture in, in some of this stuff. I'm so glad you asked it because it reminded me when we were talking about help for the body a little bit earlier, I wanted to mention one of the skills that we teach kids is Scripture meditation. And you know, for kids who are experiencing worry, we love having them memorize, for example, 2 Timothy 1.7, God did not give me a spirit of fear. Mm but a power of love and of a sound mind. And there's dual benefit, I think, for kids in that. One is that they're speaking the scripture out loud to themselves, combating those worried or looping thoughts as we've talked about. Mm. And the second, they're hiding God's word in their hearts. And I think about that with anger when boys have released, you know, the, some of that physicality and intensity to memorize Ephesians 4, 26. In your anger, do not sin. Mm. Like, we're going to experience anger. That's a normal human emotion. Don't sin. Don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt other people when that happens. And what does it look like, again, as we were saying a few minutes ago, to live out those truths with kids in those ways and making those scriptures real and come alive for them in their daily lives? And I think so much of what we're talking about is the concept of 2 Corinthians 10, 5 that talks about taking every thought captive to the obedience mm -hmm. of Christ. Because as we're talking about anxiety, even, I mean, one of the things that the research says is that anxiety always distorts. And, and our feelings do. That's that living life at a 10. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, and so grounding in truth, I think, takes all of us back to a place where we can get to more hope and more freedom. Yeah. I have I have one more thing that I'm seeing that I want to ask you about, and I have to I confess like I'm I'm totally guilty of this one. It's been a lifelong journey for me, and there, it's also you know sort of an anti-biblical thing that I have struggled with. But perfectionism, mm. um, I see that a lot with with our kids, uh, and 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 like I said with myself, I I don't know if you have uh, any practical tips for parents of kids that you know they're starting to see that at an early age. Um, and maybe some, some skills that, that parents could help develop there. I see it a lot with girls. I mean, there are a lot of girls who are per perfectionistic. And I think 
a lot of the, the conversation we're having, I mean, one of the things I do with girls a lot is have them name their worries. So calling it for little ones, the worry monster for high school kids, I'll have them call it the worry whisperer. I think with perfectionists, they don't necessarily attach so much to the worry monster because it doesn't feel like I'm worried about a storm or a tornado if you lived in Tennessee, but it's more that I'm worried things aren't going to look the way I thought they were going to look. I'm worried my schedule's going to get disrupted, you know, something like that. I'm worried I'm not going to do it right. And so for them, a lot of times I'll call it the control monster (laughs) and have them talk about the control monster is going to tell you if your brother comes in and messes up your room, you're not going to be okay. What do you want to tell him differently? You know, back to taking every thought captive. What do you want to tell him differently? Because that's not true. And helping, I think, reinforce that in them, that they're stronger than any lie that the control monster, the worry monster tells them. And, and also, I think we talked about this a little bit, but that idea of talking about failure as a family, I think mm-hmm. is so helpful for little perfectionists to hear their parents fail, mess up, feel like they didn't measure up. And I'm telling perfectionist families a lot. I want y'all to go do something together that no one does well. Awesome. Where everybody is wrestling together, whether it's a batting cage or I had a family two weeks ago that said, well, we're all really athletic. And I said, go paint pottery, you know, whatever it is, do something that no one does well. So you're all kind of strengthening that muscle together and you can laugh because I'm a perfectionist too. We don't laugh at ourselves very much. (laughs) And I think kids need to see us do that. Yeah. What would you add? You know, it's interesting. I was thinking, even as you were asking that question, I have lost count over the years with how many boys I've worked with whose perfectionism is on full display when playing golf. Oh, man. It's a tell. Oh, my God. It's a tell. <laughs> yeah. They lose their yeah. minds. Like, you know, boys who are super compliant, great students, amazing in the classroom, and go off the rails yeah. on the golf course. And I think, again, it's that often that athletic context, context yeah. is where it's going to show up. And I think, you know, to Sissy's great point, there is always a power and control phenomena at play with anxiety for any one of us. Like to the degree that we feel out of control on the inside, we are going to try to control and manage something on the outside. And whether it's my golf game or any number of things. And I want to say to you too, your question makes a lot of sense to us. We are both firstborns. And so Me been too. Poured, yeah. I mean, we've been toward perfectionism. It's yeah. a default setting. Yeah. And so all of that makes sense. But I love when Sissy talks about that it wasn't until – she was further in life that she realized like, what is that accomplishing exactly for me? Yeah. Cause it just looks high achieving and like, yeah. I value excellence and right. I want to do my best. Yeah. In all right. all and, those things. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Waking up to the reality. Oh no, it is about something else. Well, and you know, biblically we know there's only one, one perfection, one perfect yes. person that was Jesus. So it's an impossible standard to meet, yes. but it feels hard to internalize that. I mean, it's taken me a lifetime to, to internalize that. And yeah. I see it in our, in our kids, you know, sometimes too. So gosh, I have learned a ton today. Uh, I hope our listeners have too. I know they have, uh, thank you so much for being here. We can't say thank you enough for, for all the wisdom that you've brought to our community over the past couple of days. Well, thank you for having us. You're so fun to talk to. Oh, you really are. Yeah. It's been a rich conversation. Thank you. Who paid, who, who told you that you had to say <laughs> that, you know? Uh, well, thank you again to, to both of you and thanks to our listeners. Uh, it was great to have you back for another episode of our Eagle Perspective podcast. If this is your first episode, we're glad you joined us. We have a number of others. You can find us on Apple Music, Spotify, and other places where podcasts are found. If you want to see the video podcast, you can check us out on YouTube as well. We'll be back with you with another episode soon.